Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast, and welcome back to another episode. A quick bit of housekeeping first. This month has so far been easily the best one for the show to date. We've hit a huge downloads milestone, broken all of our previous records for downloads in a day, in a week, and I'm expecting in a month, and have gotten so much wonderful support in the form of iTunes reviews, Patreon support, and so much else that it's honestly a little overwhelming. If you listen to this show, I consider you a personal friend. Seriously. And if you decide to support us by leaving an iTunes review, then please let me know and I will send you a sticker. We've also recently updated the Patreon rewards as well, with patrons now receiving access to exclusive video recaps of these episodes. I've made one of these recaps available on our YouTube page, which I hope in a few months will also start showcasing experiments and visual explanations for some of the things that we cover on these episodes. So, keep an eye out for that and some other big changes coming to the show, which I hope you're really going to enjoy. Alright, enough plugging, let's get into the meat of this episode. This episode is a long time coming. It's a topic that I've been fascinated with ever since I was a kid, and one that really scared me when I was younger. Alien abduction cases have sort of taken on a very regular motif or pattern in the modern consciousness. With stories about people waking in the middle of the night by a glowing light through their windows, but waking up with only the faintest of memories, being pretty commonplace. Usually these involve flashes of sickly thin arms, silver walls, and a deep humming throb in the person's ears, sometimes even with a cut into their guts or organs, and almost always deep, dark, almond-shaped eyes. But interestingly, there are a huge variety of alien races, methods, stories, purposes, and ideals out there in this field, if you believe any of that stuff. And even if you don't believe any of these things are real, the fact of this modern mythology being built all around us is pretty fascinating. And in many ways, the alien phenomena follows along with the abduction and mythology cases of the past. And since this topic is so huge, so varied, and contains so many different pieces to it, we're sort of going to have to take an X-Files-style approach here and pepper in small pieces of the alien mythos to build into a fuller story over time. This episode, we're going to look at one small part of the abduction phenomena, which is itself a smaller part of the alien phenomenon in general, and focus on the very first abduction case ever discussed in public. Although according to modern knowledge on the phenomena, it may not be the very first case to have actually occurred. I am of course talking about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, which occurred in my favorite state, and one of my favorite parts of my favorite state, the area around the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So shield your eyes, get back in your car, and prepare to lose some time on this week's episode. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 28, Betty and Barney Hill, part one. For this episode, I've done my square best to find all of the most pertinent information, although there is a huge amount of it out there. Primarily, the research here comes from interviews, hypnosis sessions, and books written in conjunction with the Hills, including primarily The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller, and a number of papers from the Betty and Barney Hill collection at the University of New Hampshire, which I was lucky enough to take a look at when those items went on display as part of a permanent collection in the Diamond Library. 
This story is one that is particularly close to my heart, not only because it's the first real abduction case to be put out there in the world, but also because the setting and people this story is about are the settings and the people that I have decided to call my home and my neighbors. New Hampshire is a magical place, with the fall colors turning the deep green fields and bright forests into an autumnal world of reds, yellows, and oranges. The woods going from an inviting, cheerful place to a foreboding, dark rust-colored world with winds howling and the cold bite of winter never far off. This case is one that I have always loved, and it's probably one that I would most like to sit down with and write a book someday on, assuming that this podcast keeps going well and I win the damn lottery. The area where the Hills lived, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, is a relatively small city, without large buildings or towering skyscrapers, but it's still significantly more populated than the White Mountain Roads where the abduction itself took place. And this is a part of this story that is often glossed over or not really discussed as far as I can tell. I think people just assume that since they lived in New Hampshire, they must have been used to, like, cutting their own firewood and hunting for their own meat or something. But the difference between the Portsmouth where the hills lived and the roads of Route 3 between Cannon Mountain and Lincoln, New Hampshire, where their encounter supposedly took place, is, like, so, so drastic. That stretch of Route 3 is nearly desolate by comparison even today to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, without lights on the roads and long stretches where the only signs of human civilization you may see are sporadic hotels and shops every like 5 to 10 miles or so. It's an easy area to become disoriented in, and I myself have had many a night driving through the region, noticing a strange light in the sky that I can't place which turns out to have a completely human explanation, or even losing the moon through the trees and clouds, only to have it reappear on the opposite side of my car. So when you think of the hills, it is likely more apt to think of them as dwellers of a small city, used to lights and noises at nearly all times, making their way through a heavily forested and foreign region of mountainous terrain and woods. This isn't to say, of course, that the hills were completely amateur when it came to the White Mountain region of New Hampshire, as they had, as far as I can tell, been through the region at least once or twice before. But I think it's important to make clear that this is not the surroundings that they would have been at home in, nor felt completely comfortable driving through. And with that caveat, let's get into the details of this case. The Betty and Barney Hill case begins with a husband and wife duo coming home from a trip to Montreal, back to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, along with their dog named Delcy, who is a wiener dog, which is hilarious and adorable. The year is 1961, and aliens have hit the public consciousness in a big way, although to say that it was aliens may be something of a misnomer. It's more like UFOs have hit the public consciousness, since the idea of these craft actually having alien visitors in them was something still part of science fiction only in many ways. Now, only a few years before, in 1947, the famous Roswell crash had occurred. And this spurred just a huge public love of the UFO and, you know, flying saucer thing. And so it's around this time that you start to see TV shows like The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone and movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still positing visitors from the stars who are coming here either to destroy or help humans from, you know, stopping some catastrophic end. This is also part of what I like to call the era of the benevolent space brother. If you look at the history of UFO sightings, they kind of get broken up into these general chunks. 
And so first you have this era where people believed that UFOs were coming here specifically to stop humans from destroying ourselves. And in many ways, this comes from the anxieties of the Cold War, right? I mean, we had just shown not that long ago the kind of destruction that we could wreak with nuclear weaponry. And now all of a sudden, our biggest adversary, Russia, has these weapons as well. And so people believed that, well, you know, if I don't know if God won't save us, maybe the aliens will. So this is part of that. And after the benevolent space brother kind of era, we have things like the hippie era of UFOs, where we have a lot of visitations by naked Venetians who were like, yeah, man, let's expand our minds and have sex with random dudes in fields. It's pretty strange. And then towards the 1980s and 1990s is when we really start to see things like aliens being part of a larger nefarious government conspiracy, right? They stopped being like saviors, almost aliens, like aliens as angels from the stars. And instead they started to be part of this kind of, you know, underground government kind of thing where people believed that the military was part of this alien phenomena and was having UFOs come abduct humans and do tests on them, or that we had even completely given up to the aliens in the first place. So it's kind of a slow progression from aliens being helpers and, you know, like learned and smart and erudite and peaceful, wanting the best for humans to slowly morphing them from these kind of views to be more of a aggressive anti-human force. So this event occurs at the height of the Cold War. We're only a few years out from the horrors of the Nazi Holocaust, and the space race is in full effect here. And so in many ways, this is the era that begins our modern conspiracy theory culture. With the horrors of MKUltra and the Tuskegee experiment occurring during this time, and the era of nearly endless war really beginning to take off. To say that the flying saucer craze, as Betty herself put it in an interview towards the end of her life, wasn't a part of their everyday culture is an inaccuracy that is often attributed to this case. Betty's sister Janet in particular had even claimed to have seen a UFO a few years earlier on her way home from Kingston, New Hampshire to Haverhill, Mass, on Route 125, and her mother had also claimed to have seen UFOs. Barney himself in interviews and recollections of the event claimed that Betty believed in UFOs before this event had actually occurred, although he himself would remain stubbornly skeptical until he was eventually faced with these memories, supposedly through hypnotic regression. So, to set the stage here, the Hills are a family that knows something about UFOs. Betty has a family connection to the event, and Betty, I would think, would consider herself to be a believer even before this event occurred. Barney had been in the military. He'd actually been, I believe he had actually been in the Air Force. And he did not think UFOs were possible or actually occurring. He just kind of steered clear of the whole thing. One other important point here, at least if you decide to go read these books, is that this is 1961 and the Hills are an interracial couple. Barney is black and Betty is white. And so it's kind of interesting that a lot of the reporting on this at the time, and even the book, The Interrupted Journey, kind of peppers in like weird kind of things about them being interracial throughout the whole thing. So one thing that comes up is that Barney, when he first claims to have been frightened about this event occurring, 
is he thinks of he claims that he thinks of a uh, of an Irishman looking at him because he says that uh, that in his experience, the Irish are more racist, I guess. So it's a little iffy in this actual book. And some of the recollections are definitely you definitely get the tinge of, wow, this was the 1950s, man. But so. Betty and Barney had both been part of the local NAACP chapter. They had both been fairly progressive throughout their entire lives. They were part of a Unitarian church. So they're they're kind of open to new experiences and open towards more, I would say, progressive ways of thinking. So again, something important to keep in mind here throughout this case. The hills are on a road known as Route 3. On a stretch that today follows Interstate 93 down towards Concord, New Hampshire, in the middle of the state. This is known as the White Mountain Region, an area with towering rock faces and dense forests on either side of the road for some stretches, and a part of the state that has always made the bulk of its money through tourism and skiing. They are tired. The hills have spent the weekend traveling up to Niagara Falls in Montreal on a spur-of-the-moment vacation, and they'd already been driving for the entirety of the day at this point already. Now, they didn't make a lot of stops in their trip because they didn't have a whole lot of money for this spur of the moment vacation. And they had actually decided to keep food on hand in a car refrigerator so that they wouldn't have to stop to eat at gas stations or restaurants. Now, the trip itself here was supposed to be the vacation, as far as I can tell. It's not like they were specifically going to Montreal or Niagara Falls to see those sites, although they did stop there. It was more like a leisurely drive through the countryside. The trip was planned for four days, with Barney having been working long hours in Boston as a post office clerk for a while previous to this, and specifically making the approximately two-hour commute each way every single day. So you can imagine, he's tired already from this just brutal commute, and now he decides to take a driving trip for vacation. I'm not saying that this experience was a dream, but this dude was definitely feeling fatigued. <laughs> but This trip from Portsmouth to Montreal is by no means a horrible trip. In fact, Katie and I had made the same one while we were in college at UNH. It's about a five-hour drive between Montreal and Portsmouth. So let's say about seven hours, given that it's the 1960s, and they took back roads on purpose for scenery. It's certainly doable, but something to keep in mind with the story, since time and the amount of time that they should have been on the road is going to become really important once they're supposedly abducted by aliens. So they're on their way home from Montreal after this four-day vacation. It's now September 19th, and it's around 10.30pm when Betty begins to notice a bright light in the sky which she at first believes may be a planet. Betty in many ways reminds me of my mom, actually. She at first, supposedly, jokes to Barney that she had discovered a brand new planet that she knew nothing about. Something that my mom would absolutely say to me, and I'm almost certain I've gotten a phone call from her about that same exact thing. Anyways, Betty is looking at this thing, and she thinks nothing of it for the first few miles. Although when she sees it continuing to be in their line of sight, and seemingly to notice it growing larger, she mentions to Barney to take a look. In interviews and hypnotic regressions, Barney would actually claim that he was getting somewhat annoyed at Betty here, because although he kept saying that it must be a plane of some sort, his wife was completely unconvinced, and she kept kind of bothering him like, you know, look at this, look at this, and he's trying to drive. 
And again, Barney knew that Betty believed in flying saucers before this, so he felt that she was being silly. She was trying to get him to believe that it was a flying saucer or something. Now, one thing that comes up a lot in hearing about this story or the way it's told is acting as if Betty and Barney were both equally terrified about what happened to them. But it's almost kind of weird in in many later interviews, uh, specifically the interview that I really studied for this, which is an interview with the folklorist John Horrigan towards the end of Betty's life, like in 1999. She actually recounts that as they're seeing this light, she's actually waving to it and trying to call out to it and saying like, you know, come down here, come down here, show us what you are. So it's, it's almost, you know, Betty almost seems happy about this event. She almost seems like inquisitive and joyous that these aliens, these flying saucers would come down to her while Barney is just, I mean, completely terrified. We're going to play some of the recordings of his hypnosis session. And it's like, it's bone chilling. It's really, really scary stuff in my opinion, at least. So, and, and I think, I think Betty was frightened as well, but the dichotomy between the way that these two see this event later on and how they respond to it is pretty staggering in my opinion. So they're driving now and eventually Betty convinces Barney to pull the car over at a picnic area near twin mountains to really get a good look at this thing. They had a pair of binoculars in the car. And so they're looking through the binoculars and they decide, you know, they're going to take the dog Delcy out for a walk as well. And Barney keeps trying to convince Betty that this thing is just another plane. He mentions that it must be a Piper Cub, which is a plane that he had seen on Lake Winnipesaukee, which is a lake that I drove by every single day for about a year while I was in grad school because I was living um, in that area of New Hampshire. But this this thing is moving super erratically, right? Barney mentions that it reminds him almost of like a uh, one of those balls that's attached to a ping pong paddle, right? Like the rubber balls. And so it's kind of moving out and then slowing and then coming back at a really fast speed and then moving and then going up and down. And so it's not moving like any plane that he's seen before. And so Barney, as he's looking at this thing, just keeps getting more and more anxious because he's like, what, what is this thing? It, it can't exist. So they keep driving, they get back in the car And this time now they're moving much more slowly. I think Barney says they're moving at something like five miles per hour and they pass by the Cannon Mountain Ski Resort and they keep seeing this thing flit in and out from behind the trees and from behind the mountains. Now they pull over again and near the old man in the mountain, which is this rock face that used to exist. They notice that this thing is around 48 feet because they can see it's near the old man in the mountain. And so they try to get a, an approximate size that way. And again, they see it move you know, back and forth. It's kind of rocking around. And this time, Barney is so concerned that he actually goes to get a gun from the trunk. Now, what's kind of interesting is if you listen to the hypnosis sessions themselves, he very clearly says that he gets a gun from the trunk. But in this book, The Interrupted Journey, they say that he only got a like a, a wrench or something from the back of the car. I think that probably has something to do with the fact that I don't know. It's 
a guy who maybe wasn't supposed to have a gun or like, you know, I don't know what the gun laws were like back in the day, but I can imagine he probably wanted to keep that part of this story secret. So anyways, so they get back in the car now with Barney having a gun in his pocket and they're both quite frightened at this point and they're moving south on Route 3, again, going about five miles per hour. And as they're driving down, they pass by Indian Head which is a resort on this Route 3, and near what is today the Whale's Tail Water Park, but what was at the time Nature Land, this craft lowers itself in front of their car. And so how close to the road surface the craft actually gets is not super clear, but low enough that Barney just pulls his car to like the middle of the road and parks there. And so he walks over into this field towards the craft. He's got these binoculars in his hand. He's looking at this craft and looking at the craft for the first time. Truly clearly, he sees that it is like a flat pancake with a row of windows going around its whole length. And as it descends, he notices two red lights on the edges of the craft and what appear to be wings protruding from the edges lowers itself. So. I guess you can imagine a uh, like a flying, a standard flying saucer like craft. And then at the point where the top plate and the bottom plate meet, you have these kind of flat panels pushing out horizontally. So like wings extending with red lights on. The dog Delcy is in the car. And Barney would say that he doesn't really recall just what Betty or Delcy were doing at this point. But Betty would say that Delcy, you know, is freaking out now and she is trying to call to Barney, but he keeps walking towards this craft. He's walking through this field. So Barney makes his way towards the craft into this grassy field and Betty is shouting at him to come back. She's lost sight of him. Barney then claims to have looked through the binoculars and sees a crew of around eight or nine humanoid figures with slanted large eyes and bald heads. They're wearing uniforms, although the apparent leader of this group is wearing a scarf around his neck. Some of the figures appear to be smiling at him, while the leader appears nearly angry or malicious. And the memory of the leader would continue to haunt Barney in particular, especially this leader's eyes. He's always going back to, oh God, the eyes are, the eyes are looking at me. The eyes see me. The eyes are, the eyes are, are near my eyes. As he looks, the figures move back from the window to what he takes to be some sort of control panel while the leader sits and just stares at him. And Barney is terrified at this point. He has these binoculars to his eyes and he's looking at the leader, but he can't seem to physically lower them, almost as if he isn't in control of his own body. He claims that he has this thought in his head where the leader is almost communicating to him. And what it seems to be saying is, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. All you have to do is keep looking at me, keep looking into my eyes. And Barney 
is like shouting at himself in his head, like, look away. You have to look away. You have to escape. These things are going to capture. You have to escape. And so he eventually musters the willpower to just rip the binoculars from his eyes. And he runs screaming back to the car, shouting to Betty, you know, get in the car. This they're going to capture us. They're coming to take us away. They tear off down the road. They pass what is today known as Clark's Trading Post. Again, in this area of this region that's known as Indian Head. When Betty at Barney's you know, scream suggestion to see if it's following them, she looks out the window to see if these creatures are still on their tail. And she sees it, and suddenly they hear a repetitive beeping which Betty would later say seems to come from near the trunk of the car. And Barney would actually mention something very similar during his hypnosis sessions. With this beeping kind of repetitive beeping noise comes something like a tingling sensation throughout their bodies. The time at this point is near midnight. And with this beeping, they seem to lose all conscious memory of what next occurs. They seem to recall small flashes, such as turning off the road, coming to a roadblock, seeing a giant glowing orb of some sort that they believe is the setting moon, and being in the woods or a field, like not on the road, but in a, in a dark field or forest. And it's just, it just goes blank. They, they have no recollection of what occurs in these next, this next period of time. The next time the hills regain memory or consciousness is as they're nearing Route 93, about 35 miles south of where the beeping began. They're driving in their car. They're, they're moving down the highway at a normal clip, and they come to with another set of beeping sounds. And they awaken seemingly calm. They're confused. They, they don't know exactly where they are or what just happened to them. And really, they they claim to have only fully realized where they are by passing a sign for Concord on I-93. Although they vaguely remember passing a sign for Ashland, which is about 35 to 37 miles south of Indian Head, where they stopped in the road to get that final good look at the craft. And Betty actually recalls asking Barney something along the lines of, now, you know, do you believe in flying saucers? To which he replies... Of course not, don't be ridiculous. They drive pretty much the rest of the way home, about an hour and a half, in near silence. They seem to be in a state of shock. And Barney would Barney and Betty both would later say that this is probably likely. And they're kind of making the motions mechanically of getting home so that they can finally take some rest after this frightening night. Now, now what's important here, again, is the chronology, right? They see this craft at midnight. They were about two hours away from Portsmouth at that point. They should have gotten home somewhere between, let's say, 2 to 3 a.m., maybe 4 a.m. tops if we're being super conservative with how quickly they were going. When they finally arrive in Portsmouth at their home, though, it's, it's dawn. The sun is rising already. So figure it must be at least 5, 5, 5.30. So they seem to be missing about an hour of time at least, maybe let's say a half hour at least, 
to about three hours at most, depending on, again, when they actually see this craft the final time, when they finally get home, what the sunrise was, all that kind of stuff. So, what, you know, just what happened in that period of time is going to become a huge point of contention for the Hills, a big point of questioning for them as they try to piece together this very frightening experience that happened to them. And they actually, interestingly, won't even, they actually won't even realize that they missed so much time. They realize that there's about 35 miles of travel that they can't account for, but they actually don't even realize that they're missing any time until about five months later after talking the event through with someone. All right, so they arrive home. Looking at their watches, they realize that they have both stopped functioning. Both of their watches are no longer working and supposedly would never work again. Betty's dress has been ripped, and Barney's shoes are scuffed up on their tops, as if he was dragged almost, and the binoculars leather strap has been ripped in half as if it was forcibly removed. As they get home, Betty asks Barney for no clear reason that she can at the moment pinpoint to not bring any of their belongings into the home and instead to leave them near their back door. They each take showers, and Barney for some reason is compelled to check his genitals, although at the time he didn't know why. Betty also compelled them both to draw a picture of what they had seen that night. Oh, actually, it's not very clear who asked the other to draw the picture. It seems like maybe Barney did, because Betty wouldn't stop talking about it. And when they do finally show each other their drawings, they're strikingly similar. Although, again, that can't really be verified, since they didn't show these drawings to anyone at the moment, as far as I can tell. And finally, they do fall asleep, awaking to try and explain the events of the night before. Betty removes her dress, her favorite dress, in fact, that is now part of the collection at the University of New Hampshire, and finds that it seems to have a pinkish powder on it, which falls off after she hangs it in the closet. She then goes to throw the dress away as well as her shoes, but thinks better of it and retrieves the dress and stuffs it into the back of her closet. And again, this was her favorite dress, supposedly, so kind of a weird piece of behavior. As they wake up, Betty is really interested and excited about what happened to them. She's she really wants to get to the bottom of it. But Barney isn't having any of that. He's pretty shaken up by the whole encounter. And although Betty was in some ways a believer before the event, Barney is just trying to get her to drop the whole thing. But she keeps asking him for details of what he remembers, what he think happened, and eventually by discussing it, she convinces him that she should at least tell someone about this event. And, you know, he concedes, and so she calls her sister Janet, who, as I had said previously, had had an encounter with a UFO a few years earlier and had confided in Betty at the time. So Betty felt comfortable telling her sister, both because it's her sister, but also because Janet had some experience with this thing and had kind of seemed to know something about it as well. Just, you know, more than I'd say the average person in the 1960s. Betty confides to Janet that she's actually quite frightened about the possibility of radiation hurting her or her husband due to their encounter with this craft. Something that I find pretty interesting. I mean, this part of the story kind of sticks out to me because if Betty 
again, we know that Betty knew something about UFOs before this. She was interested in them. She had had this family experience and she would be what I would consider to be a believer before this event occurred. The fact that she would even have the thought that radiation might be an issue here again suggests that she had more than a passing notion of what at least at least more than a passing notion of what the popular view of UFOs was supposed to do right i mean radiation as a science even it's the 1960s radiation is not all that well understood and so the idea of her being worried about contamination of their food or their clothing i mean that's that's pretty consistent but again it's it is a very interesting thing and so Anyways, this is just a part of this that I think is, it sticks out a little bit. Now, supposedly her sister tells her to check their car. Since if the craft seemed to make this buzzing noise, and, you know, Betty, again, thinks that this buzzing noise might have been coming from the trunk of the car in some way, then perhaps there's some physical evidence of this actually occurring. So Betty goes outside to find that there are actually polished concentric circles on the trunk's hood of the car. I can't find any evidence of this besides Betty's own recollection and Barney's own recollection. The investigator who comes by later, probably the the first one that would be able to see something like this, mentions that they actually never brought up the circles to him, or he at least never asked about them, which is kind of strange. And supposedly they just disappear. So. I don't know about these circles, man. I mean, it's an interesting piece of evidence, but it's a little bit iffy. Anyways, Betty sees these circles. She gets all excited, immediately tells Janet, and Janet actually, I guess, knew a physicist who was one of her neighbors. And so Janet suggests, well, if there is physical evidence, maybe this physicist knows what to look for. Maybe he'll be able to tell you something more about this. So the physicist actually tells them that what they should try to do is go get a compass. Because in the physicist's reasoning, at least, or what we know of the physicist's reasoning through these stories that are given to us today, if the metal was affected by radiation in some way or it was changed, then perhaps there was a change in the magnetic properties of the metal. So they go get a compass and Betty puts it over the circles and finds that, yes, in fact, they are messing with the magnetism of this compass. They're actually seeming to affect the magnetic field. So, in other words, when the compass is around the normal part of the of the car metal, it seems to be operating normally, it's just pointing north. But when she moves it towards the circles, and then over the circles, the magnet inside the compass actually causes the compass needle to spin around or move wildly. So, this is an interesting piece of evidence. We're going to get into this a lot more in the second part of this series which will come out next week, which is on the theories, the science of this story itself. But keep that one in the back of your mind. This, magne- this magnetism thing is, is very interesting. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. 
they were able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Now, this this physical evidence and just the whole thing gets Betty so upset that she convinces Barney to contact the Air Force. And so they contact the Pease Air Force Base, which is a nearby uh, nearby Pease, New Hampshire, about 30 minutes from Portsmouth. And they give the report to the Air Force and the Air Force seems actually pretty interested in the whole thing, especially the wings on the craft. And this kind of puts Barney at ease that maybe something real happened. It makes Betty feel a little bit better. And the Hills just try to go on with their daily lives. Now remember, they can't remember at all what happened in that 35 miles between the beeping noises, supposedly. But Betty begins to have extremely vivid, frightening dreams about 10 days after the initial event, which last for five days in total. And her dreams are pretty disturbing, suggesting that potentially they didn't just see the craft, but instead may have been taken on board or forcefully experimented on or in Betty's recollection, maybe not so forcefully experimented on. Her dreams are at first assumed to be just that dreams. However, both the dreams and their encounter cause Betty to begin looking into UFO cases. She also actually records the dreams as she remembers them at the suggestion of a friend. And what she records is pretty interesting. Now, originally, I was going to read the entire transcript of her dreams, but it's pretty long and kind of boring. Here are the highlights. So first off, Betty claims that they are driving after Barney, remember, jumps in the car and is freaking out. They're driving down the road and they come to a roadblock. They're like no longer on Route 3. For some reason, they take a left turn, then another sharp right turn. And they come into a very wooded area where there are these beings in the road with a very, very bright light almost blinding the hills. They remove Betty and Barney from the car. They bring them up to the ship and they lead them inside. Now... Barney is in like a trance almost. He's almost like sleepwalking, Betty says. But Betty makes a point that she's able to break out of this trance and takes control of her own body again. But she's pretty cooperative with the aliens. They are speaking to her in English, specifically the leader. So they make kind of a hierarchy. There is the leader who is the one that Barney sees and is quite frightened of. Then there's the examiner who's the one that actually does these tests on them that we're going to get to in a second. And then there's the crew, which are these other like seven or five, depending on the total number, um, other beings. Now, Betty interestingly claims that they're, they're bald. They're about five foot to five foot, four inches tall. They're wearing something like a uniform, like a military uniform or almost like a, I don't want to say a romper because that sounds stupid but almost like a mechanic's uniform, or I guess she says more like an Air Force pilot's uniform almost. And they're even wearing hats, which is kind of interesting. She mentions that their skin is a grayish hue. They have blue lips and their noses are like those of Jimmy Durant. If 
you've been paying any attention to the UFO phenomena and specifically the cases of alien encounters, this is actually a pretty like these exaggerated features and weird colors are actually pretty common at the time period. And it's led some to think that aliens are almost bungling in what they do, right? So when when Woody Derenberger first meets Indrid Cold, he basically comes down and he's like, you know, it's almost it's it's very similar to Invader Zim, where, you know, Zim is like stuffing trash into his mouth and he's like, I love normal human food. It's very similar to that level of alien intelligence about what humans do. Betty claims that they're talking to her in English and the leader is basically saying, you don't have to be frightened. The faster that we can get this done, the faster you'll get back to your car and everything will be back to normal. And so they get into this room. They're separated because the aliens say they don't have enough. They don't have enough room in each of their examining rooms to do the tests on each of them, which, okay, maybe. But again, you did get here from another planet. So shouldn't you have better technology than that? Anyways, they examine Betty. They do all kinds of different tests on her. They look at her skin. They check her her neurological system, they say, by kind of shocking her or poking her with these metal prods. They, you know, take samples of her hair, of her nails. They look at her teeth. The teeth thing is actually quite interesting. They supposedly get very confused because Barney has dentures, but Betty doesn't. So when they realize that Barney's teeth can be removed, they come into the room all excited and they're like, Leader, look, we we got his teeth. Look at this. Isn't this weird? And so Betty supposedly shares a hearty guffaw with the leader about this misunderstanding. The they also talk to her about Earth culture. They talk to her about food and like specifically she mentions how to make squash because I guess that's her favorite vegetable, which is pretty interesting. They talk about, you know, her age, what what a year is. So it's kind of interesting. And Betty ends up almost making a rapport with these aliens. She says that the only test that they do that actually hurts her is a pregnancy test is what they call it. Basically, what they do is stick a huge needle through her navel and it causes Betty immense pain. And the leader kind of like waves his hand in front of her eyes and removes all the pain. And so Betty, you know, thanks him and they become friendly, I suppose, is the best way to put it. And so at the end of this whole thing, Betty asks the leader, you know, what's your land like? What's your what's your home like? And specifically, where is your home? And the leader pulls down a star map and tries to show Betty where they're from. But Betty doesn't know anything about the solar system. And so the alien almost becomes. Upset, almost almost offended that she doesn't know about their solar system. And so he kind of snaps the the I don't know the cellophane thing that he was looking at down, he puts it back away. And Betty is actually trying towards the end to convince these these beings to meet with scientists, to meet with world leaders. She says, you know, I might not know, but they I bet they would. So, you know, I bet you could do a lot of good on this planet almost. So again, we're kind of getting this feel from Betty that she is definitely in the in the camp of benevolent space brothers, right? These aliens are here to help us in some way. Um, 
you know, and in her experience, at least, it seems like that is the case. They haven't harmed her in any way. They've been quite kind to her, she says. They've been, you know, relatively caring. They haven't hurt her on purpose. So starkly, starkly different than some of the current views on UFO cases, even abductions that supposedly happened around the same time period that are only now becoming public. And so another thing that Betty claims to have talked to the aliens about is getting a piece of evidence, some incontrovertible proof to show people that this really happened. And so the aliens claim, or the Betty claims at least that the alien said she could take home with her a book of alien writing. But as they're leaving the ship, the smaller aliens come to the leader and are like, you know, this is a terrible idea. We can't have them bringing home anything. And so they take the book away and they claimed to say to her that, you know, it's best that you don't remember any of this. You probably won't remember any of this. But Betty again claims to say to the leader, well, I'll never forget you. I hope you come back. I wish you would come back. You know, please, basically, please come back. So. And and with that, they bring them back to the car. They watch the ship leave. And that's kind of it. That's the end of their experience. They then drive back on a route three. They get towards Concord and then they're back in full control of their faculties, the both of them. Now, Barney, on the other hand, claims to not be able to remember anything past seeing the eyes of the leader that time that they pull over towards what is now, today, the Whale's Tale Amusement Park. He claims to see the eyes. He remembers jumping back in the car and then pretty much nothing. He remembers beeping noises to some extent, and then he, he kind of falls out. But again, Barney has a completely different experience with this. Barney's. While Betty is frightened at first, but then it becomes uh, a very interesting and maybe some would even say pleasurable experience for her in her dreams, at least. In Barney's view, this is a terrible fright, something so frightening that he cannot even bring himself to remember the parts of it that Betty is seemingly able to recall. Whether or not Betty shared the shared the full details of her dream with Barney are is going to become a very important question to test the validity of this story and to test the validity of the later hypnosis. If Betty had never told Barney what she dreamt, and that seems quite unlikely in my opinion, just as someone who has nonsensical but weird dreams and immediately wakes up to tell his wife you know katie you'll never believe how many pancakes i ate last night with you know robin williams or whatever it's it's it seems unfathomable to be that that she would not have told barney at least some aspects of the dream and some of her concerns so if she did tell him then potentially the hypnosis results that we're going to get to later on are completely thrown out well, maybe not completely thrown out, but they're at least tinged with this knowledge of something else. On the other hand, if she never told him, then the hypnosis tapes that we're going to get to offer a startling, not only a startling version of these events that is far different than what Betty experienced, but also a startling, a startling support of these events as Betty partially remembers them. And some people would say that 
Betty's experience. Betty is being allowed to remember this in some way. Betty is remembering it as a positive experience during her dreams because she has to, because it it's, it's the way that her dreams, you know, the way that her mind is coping with this while Barney's mind is completely shutting it out. Betty's is turning it into almost a, a positive, nearly religious experience. So again, a lot of these questions of psychology, what is real, what isn't real are embedded in all of this and very difficult to pick apart in this one particular story. So we're only around 10 to 15 days out from the initial event. Betty is having these dreams. They are bothering her with their implications about whether or not they could be true. And at the same time, Barney is finding himself increasingly anxious to the point that it's actually beginning to affect his daily routine. And so while Betty is attempting to keep a lid on her own frightening beliefs about these encounters, her husband is actually starting to go see a therapist. Now, initially, him and his therapist think that the encounter with UFOs is just a strange thing and something that doesn't have much to do with his anxiety. For Barney in later interviews and through what we learned via their hypnosis, though, this event was extremely traumatic to him. First off, this thing is not supposed to exist. And in Barney's rational mind, this event having occurred at all must mean that he is losing his mind in some way. And so for him, the most effective and smart thing to do with all of this is just to forget that it ever happened, to move on and not ever speak of it again. And really, if it weren't for his wife's continuous efforts to determine just what occurred to them, and to prove to her husband that it was real, and also maybe her own positive spin on these events, I don't know if this case would have ever come to the public's attention. So, for the next three to five months, things are pretty normal for the Hills. But their case is making its way up the chain of command in the military. Now, Betty in her personal life is telling her friends, her colleagues, her family about these vivid dreams, about what happened to them. And Barney is continuing to meet with his therapist. And together as a couple, they also begin to talk to more people about this event that occurred to them. And in many ways, I find this to be a, an attempt by both of them to kind of reach out and to see if this event could be accepted. You know, for Barney, it's almost, could this thing be real? I'm not losing my mind. How can I tell people this to make me feel less anxious about it? And for Betty, it's almost an attempt to find more information. And so, interestingly, at this exact same time, Project Blue Book, which was the government's official method to search for UFOs, as well as NICAP, or the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, is still going on. And they actually get a, they actually get a hold of the case report from Pease Air Force Base. And so the Hills end up meeting with a member of NICAP, who's sent at the request of the Air Force to investigate this case specifically because it's so different than the others that they've previously received. This case involves a potential, uh, you know, they don't mention the abduction. The Hills actually at the very beginning leave out a lot of things because they say that they're so concerned about being taken seriously, which I find to be quite credible. But, you know, this event involves a craft almost following them. It involves this craft with the wings on the edges of it. And, you know, it's it's quite interesting for the military. And also the fact that it happens with two people in the car who both seem to recall it the same way. So the NICAP investigator is Walter Webb, who works at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston. And he finds them to be extremely believable based on his own testimony and the NICAP report, which is still available on the web. 
a portion of their case sums up his conclusions pretty well. Quote, It is the opinion of this investigator, after questioning these people for over six hours and studying their reactions and personalities during that time, that they were telling the truth, and the incident occurred exactly as reported, except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observation where human judgment is involved. End quote. Their case also comes to the attention of a few other investigators who work for local engineering and electronics companies, specifically C.D. Jackson and Robert E. Homan, as well as Major James McDonald, a local friend of the Hills who had recently retired from the Air Force Intelligence Service. Through conversations with these individuals, the Hills are convinced that hypnosis may be a useful tool for them to uncover what occurred during the amnesia period, and potentially help them alleviate some of their anxieties. So, we're going to fast forward a little bit here. It's now been around two years since the initial event, and finally these things sort of come to a head and they decide on attempting hypnotic regression therapy as a means to alleviate their continued anxieties around these events, as well as to try and figure out just what happened in those few hours where they seem to have just fallen off the face of the earth. In the time since, Betty has been continuously wondering about these dreams she's had, as well as writing them down and comparing their case against other UFO cases in the books she finds in their local library. Barney has also continued his treatment for anxiety. However, his doctor and he have come to the conclusion that this event with the UFO, which they originally believed to be an odd but inconsequential event, may be the root of much of his recent anxieties. And they've also, in an attempt to sort of dislodge some of these memories from their minds, started taking regular trips up and down Route 3 to try and find further information about what happened to them that night in September. Although they don't find anything of importance on these trips, they do have a frightening encounter where Betty has a near panic attack at a road stop. It's described in The Interrupted Journey as follows, quote, A few weeks later, another puzzling incident occurred that neither Barney nor Betty could explain. They were driving in the car through the countryside near Portsmouth, on a road in a sparsely populated area. Up ahead of them, a parked car was partially blocking the road. A group of people were standing outside the car, and Barney began to slow down gradually to avoid an accident. Suddenly, Betty was overcome by fear. She could not explain it, even to herself. Barney, she said, Barney, keep going. Please don't slow down. Keep going. Keep going. And she found herself starting to open the car door on the passenger side, with an almost uncontrollable impulse to jump out of the car and run. End quote. This event would startle both of them really badly, because up to that point, their relation to this thing had been sort of, you know, Betty being inquisitive and unemotional and Barney pretending to put a strong forward face on it, but clearly being quite upset by the whole ordeal. So this is one of the first instances where Betty really seems to show fright or a negative association with this memory or this whole event. And of course, Betty's dreams disturbed her, and they were both frightened and concerned about what those 35 miles might hold. But up to this point, again, it had been pretty much kept in control for the both of them. But things were starting to get more intense, and so they decided to attempt the hypnosis that had been suggested to them earlier. They eventually come into the care of Dr. Benjamin Simon, a well-known psychiatrist at the time in Boston, who was at that point something of an authority on the use of hypnosis and narcosynthesis, the practice of utilizing drugs to induce a more willing state to recall disturbing or difficult memories. Now, he saw the hills for a period of time where in the first three instances, what he did was create what's known as kind of hypnotic trigger words. So basically, 
a phrase or a series of words that would help to put the person into a very deep hypnotic state. And so the first three times that the Hill see this person, that's kind of what they're going to do. But eventually he begins the hypnosis therapies themselves. Supposedly, one aspect of this hypnotic regression is the ability to recall things that you wouldn't normally be able to remember. So, for instance, the exact time that you were driving, the color of everyone's clothing in a diner that you just happened to be in, the you know exact name and face of every single person that you saw. Supposedly, this is possible through hypnosis because your brain, in their explanation at least, is always picking up information and you're just not getting access to it or not using it enough for it to be available to you during normal memory. But in the hypnotic state, potentially it is becoming available. Now we're going to get into the science and the truth or, you know, some of the controversy around this use of hypnotic regression in the, in, in the next episode. But suffices to say this guy, Dr. Benjamin Simon was a respected psychiatrist. He had used hypnosis and narcosynthesis. Like I said earlier, in the army, actually, as part of the war effort, he had treated people with PTSD. He had found that regardless of the truth or falseness of a memory, the use of hypnotic regression could be a useful tool. He begins the hypnosis sessions with Barney, and I'm going to play some of the recordings of that hypnosis session. The full recordings are available online. They're all over YouTube. Betty's recordings, as far as I can tell, have never been released. I can't seem to find them anywhere. Although how exactly Barney's hypnosis sessions have made it onto the web is something of a mystery to me, actually. I haven't really been able to find all that much information on it. But anyways, the first two sessions Dr. Simon has are with Barney. And here's some snippets from those. Now, at this part of the hypnosis, there at the point where they've stopped near that kind of parking area where this amusement park is set. They've gotten out of the car and they're looking at this object with their binoculars. So Barney has left Betty and Delcy in the car. He's walking across the field towards this thing and puts the binoculars up to his eyes. And so he's recounting what he's seeing through the binoculars. This is a little choppy to hear. But I think you can still get the message from the from just from the emotion of Barney here. So if it's hard to hear, I'm sorry. It's kind of the quality of the tapes themselves. And I'll put a link up with uh, directly to the YouTube video where they have closed captioning that you can you can follow along a little bit better that way. All right. Here is this recording. You're out there by yourself, huh? You don't think of her. Is she saying anything? I can't hear her. Did you make any outcry to her the way you did to me? I I, 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 I can't remember. I don't know. I did not. You would remember it if you did. I, I did not. But I know this, this creature, this leader is telling me something. Yes. No. His lips aren't moving. Yes. Go on. 
he tell you? And he's looking at me. What did he tell you? Stay there and keep looking. Just keep looking and stay there. And just keep looking. Just keep looking. Could you hear each other? Oh, I gotta pull these binoculars away from my eyes. Because if I don't, I'll just keep staying there. Could you hear him tell you this? Oh, no. He didn't say it. You felt he said it. Right? I know. You know he just did. Just there. Yeah. Just stay there. He's saying to me. All right. I'll take in my head. All right. Pull All the binoculars away. God, give me strength. All right. All pull right. them down. Run. Pull these binoculars down and run. God. It says, my God, give me strength. I gotta get away. Oh, oh, baby! All right, all right. We gotta get away, buddy. All right, calm down, calm down. I'm trying. I gotta down. get away. Oh, how oh. could you be sure he was telling you this? Calm down. You're still asleep. Well. how could you be sure he was telling you this? His eyes. His eyes. I've never seen his eyes before. But you said oh. they were friendly. You said they were friendly. Oh, oh no. I the leaders. I said only... He was looking over his shoulder. Oh, I see. The leader was the... Friendly. How did you know the other one was the leader? Because everybody moved. Everyone was standing there looking at me. But everybody moved to these levers or in the back or they went to this big board. They looked like it, it looked like a board. And only this one with the black, black shiny jacket and the scarf. Stayed at the window. Through the entirety of their hypnosis sessions, the Hills give a similar description of the event, but with some major differences. Betty's account is pretty much one for one with her account of her dream. She again states that she was originally under some kind of hypnosis with the aliens. She then is able to break free of that and ends up actually having a pretty nice conversation with them in the end. On the other hand, Barney's experience is terrifying. He mentions the whole time that he had to keep his eyes closed so that these, you know, he, he was told to keep his eyes closed. And when he did look around, he didn't really notice anything. He mentions that the aliens put a cup over his penis to make him ejaculate, although he says he didn't orgasm. So a sort of interesting little tidbit i suppose he also mentions them giving kind of a full body exam as well as probing him in the anus for uh, a little bit of time which again is strikingly different than the experience that betty claimed to have where they basically did nothing more than a normal average checkup would would be like at the doctor so why did they have this difference between Betty and Barney, why was this difference 
present for the two of them. And again, Barney's experience of this abduction is terror, sheer terror, in my opinion. I mean, he he seems to really believe this and he seems to be quite upset by it. So at the end of all this, the Hills and Dr. Simon don't end up agreeing on just what happened to them. For Dr. Simon's part, he believed that the Hills had seen something scary and may have even been helped by the hypnosis in it alleviating their anxiety. And actually, both the Hills and Dr. Simon would agree that the hypnosis sessions, again, did actually help them to alleviate their anxiety around this issue. However, in Dr. Simon's opinion, no abduction had actually taken place. What he believed was that basically they were driving along at night. They may have had this scary thing happen to them. They were quite tired, disoriented in an area they didn't know very well, looking up at a dark night sky with, you know, mountains and trees and things obfuscating their view. And they believed they saw something scary, perhaps had a scary experience, or Barney fell asleep at the wheel, or any number of things could have occurred to cause them to have something like a panic attack and then drive away. And then the remembrances of Barney during hypnosis were due to his overhearing and talking to Betty about her dreams. So that was Dr. Simon's conclusion. Of course, it is the conclusion of many skeptics about this story. And in the time after the Hills had these hypnosis sessions, what what actually happened was for the first couple of years, the Hills just kind of went back to their normal lives. Things seemed to get better for them. However, in uh, 1965, October 25th of 1965, the Boston Traveler published a front page story called UFO Chiller, Did They Seize Couple? And supposedly the author of this, this piece, reporter John H. Luttrell, had been given a recording of the hypnosis sessions and a lecture, maybe not the hypnosis sessions, a recording of the lecture of a lecture that Betty had given at an event because during this time period, Betty and Barney started to become minor, you know, minor celebrities in the general public, but celebrities in the UFO field. They were the first case of abduction, really, to have any kind of, you know, backing or proof. And and so you can imagine that this was an extremely important thing for for this community um, and for the hills themselves. So. This is 1965. In 1966, The Interrupted Journey, the book that we've been referencing throughout this episode, was written by John G. Fuller. This book was written in cooperation with um, Dr. Simon, with the Hills. He was given access to the transcripts of their, their hypnosis sessions, which are in the book, as well as the transcripts of Betty's dreams as she had written them. So, you know, a, a good amount of information was given here about this case. Now... In 1969, Barney died of a cerebral hemorrhage, um, and Betty continued to live her life and was a fixture in the UFO community, although in later years, Betty was taken to be something of a kook. She claimed to have had, she claims to have had many later experiences with UFOs and aliens, um, although any evidence that she gave was usually just kind of, you know, blurry photos of airplanes or 
or things in the sky. So unfortunately, I, I would think for the mystery of this story in later years, Betty proved herself to be not a very reliable witness to these events. So it's kind of a sad ending to this, but it is what happened in, in on October um, of 2004 at the age of 85. Um, Betty Hill ended up dying of cancer. So, you know, these people brought a science fiction and a popular culture moment to the world. So I think that their story is very interesting, regardless of whether or not you think it really happened the way that they say it did. There's another piece of evidence here that was given by the Hills. And that is a star map that Betty claimed the aliens had shown her. If you remember during the section where we talked about her dreams, Betty claimed that the UFOs show the UFOs, the aliens showed her an image of their of their home planet and all of the the trade routes that they would travel. And, you know, okay, this is where we're we're going all the time. And these bold lines and these dot dotted lines is where we're going for exploration events and things. So at the final bit of their hypnosis, Dr. Simon told Betty that she'd be able to remember that and be able to draw it from memory. Again, all kinds of problems with hypnosis as a tool for remembrance, really. But Betty supposedly created this map. And it's going to be a really important part of the later parts of this series is going to be a really important part for the next episode here. And with that, dear listeners, we are coming to a close of the Betty and Barney Hill case. Part one, I will be back next week with part two of this series where we will talk about what the evidence really was for this case, what the science can tell us about this case and just what might have actually happened. Although of course, with a case this compelling and this, interesting it's never going to be possible to pin down exactly one explanation for what might have occurred here this week we got one new patron on patreon so rebecca doe thank you so much for becoming our newest patron the bunch of goodies that you'll get is on its way soon we also got three new itunes reviews one from radio max fm podcast one from panda 2988 And one from me first, please. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to review us on iTunes. And contact me if you would like a show sticker, please. Thank you so much again for listening to this show. I am your host, Chris Cogswell. And I will be back, like I said, in one week with both a roundtable and the second part of the Betty and Barney Hill series. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute. 
and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.